Welcome to Music Ed Talk. Today, I'm joined by Christina Sinkowitz. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I am the current orchestra teacher at Thomasdale High School in Chester, um, Virginia. Before this, I have experience teaching from elementary to college age students, and I just found my niche with high school students. They're my people. I love working with them. Um, so this is my first year in this program. I'm super excited for the school year. Despite COVID, it's going to be a great year. Aside from teaching, I run a nonprofit called Music Orchard, whose goal is to reduce the inequities and in access to quality music education. So what does equity in music education mean to you? Oh, so equity in music education is equal access, which means that students are going to have equal access to high quality instruments, instruments that they can take home with them, that they can play. They're going to have access to high quality teachers, too, because we've all had not so great teachers. Um, and we want to make sure that administrators are hiring um, teachers who are qualified to teach what they teach. Um, and also that students get um, access to things outside of the classroom, like private lessons or um, ensembles, and that those aren't prohibitive, either cost or um, time-wise that they can contribute and play in those. What do you think are some barriers to equity in music education? Money, well, specifically since I'm an orchestra teacher, it costs a lot of money to play a string instrument and to play it well. First, the instruments are more expensive than wind and brass instruments. And then to get really good at them, you almost have to have private lessons or just a really rock star orchestra teacher, which there are tons of those. But even still, in order to get to that really professional level, you have to have private lessons. It's just so difficult to play them really well. That doesn't discount that winds and brass are not difficult to play. They are easier to play up front. So when when I talk about equity up front is that for beginners, in order to be successful on a string instrument, you need to be set up with a quality instrument. So there's money. If you are in a low income household and you can't afford a nice instrument and, you know, you, you we all have that person in our family that that means well and might buy us something from eBay or Amazon, but really it's not a nice instrument and you start playing it and it doesn't work for you and it's a bad experience. So you quit. Um, so just making sure that students have that, that really nice instrument as a beginner is going to be really imperative to their success. So instruments are like the big one. Um, and then of course, taking private lessons, they're really expensive. Um, and I think that one-on-one -on -one mentoring thing is such a, a, a big part of becoming a musician. I think we all look up to a musician at some point in our life, even if it's like my daughter, Clara, loving Mariah Carey, she's like looking up to her and wants to sing like her one day. That, you know, if she had that person, like a Mariah Carey in her life that she could go to and get those lessons, like that would make a bigger impact on her than being one of like 50 in a class. I think that that makes a profound impact as well as, as far as really um, honing in on a person's musical skills and, and abilities. How do you think music educators can promote equity? So I, I think it starts in your classroom with um, not discriminating against your students um, in terms of if a student wants to be in your class, you need to make 
everything possible for them to be successful in your class. So that again, it starts with an instrument. So if I have a student coming to my class that can't afford one and I have run out of instruments, I think as an educator, I need to run to my principal or run to my community and get those donations needed so that that student can be in my class. Um, I think that that's profoundly important and just allowing that student to know that you love and care about them in that way that you're going to make things work for them. Um, I think that you need to treat students equally as well. So I think sometimes educators might teach to the top in their group because they're easy to teach and they absorb and learn and, and um, contribute faster than the lower level learners or students who may not be as musically inclined um, is that we need to make sure that we are structuring our um, instruction to include everyone so that we they all feel successful in one way or another. Can you tell us what led to the creation of the music orchard? So that's a fun story. So um, prior to being at the school I am now, I was at a kind of like a charter school, but it's a school for gifted students, Maggie Walker Governor's School. And um, my first year there, I heard about a club or an organization called Music Orchard, which was an organization founded to teach Richmond City students, fourth and fifth grade students, free private lessons by a high school mentor. The idea of this started with a student needing volunteer hours. So it was not necessarily selfish, but I don't think it was grounded in um, in the right ideals. So students would start teaching lessons in February and be done teaching by the end of April. So Richmond City students would get three months maybe of private instruction and then that's it. And these high school students would get their volunteer hours that they needed and it looks beautiful for college applications. Well, after that first year, um, I found out the founder of it was a previous student. He had graduated years ago. He was living in New York. He wanted to um, dissolve the organization. And I said, hey, I'm going to take over this because this is something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted this sort of mentoring opportunity for my students. Um, and I wanted to be able to restructure it in a way so that the students, not the mentors, came first. Because we need to be thinking about these fourth and fifth graders as who we're serving and not the high school students serving. Because that's just that was just a backwards way about it. So I took over it um, and in our first year, actually it was 1920. So we got rocked by the pandemic. <laughs> so when we started teaching um, these lessons, we actually got shut down along with the pandemic. But last year, we actually had a strangely successful year being virtual. We taught over 25 students in the city and obtained 20 instruments for them to use in our program. We're working right now on a tiered mentoring opportunity, which I think is just going to be fabulous and, and really expand the program. So what I would like to do is to get more high school students involved teaching not only strings, but because the founder was a, a trumpet player, he wants me to reach out to more winds and brass. And I, I will do that because again, there, there we go. That's an equity thing. So he's putting me in my place and I need to make sure that I am reaching out to everyone who is interested as long as we have enough mentors. But the tiered mentoring comes in where I'm gonna get community leaders involved. So Richmond Symphony members or private teachers or even Richmond City music teachers, like the instrumental teachers acting as mentors for these high school teachers 
so that they have someone to reach out to that says, hey, I'm having a really hard time teaching Bowhold. Can I call you today so you can walk me through how to do this? Because I don't know how to do it. We've all been there as teachers. We, you know, we get overconfident, like we can do this, but teaching is hard. And I love, 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 love watching these high school students problem solve and try to figure out how to teach these students. It makes them better musicians. It develops these beautiful relationships between a young student and an older student. But we were just missing that that level to make the high school mentors feel successful as well, because teaching is hard. So we're trying to set them up with more success this year um, with community volunteers to serve as a higher level mentor for the high school students. What advice would you give to other music educators who may want to create and maintain this musical mentorship model in their own schools or communities? Sure. So one of the things um, that's unique about it is that it's an actual nonprofit. So we are a 501c3. And so there's a lot of paperwork and um, requirements that go along with that. But because there are so many boundaries in schools with how you spend money, it can open up a lot of flexibility as an external um, organization. So for instance, where I am teaching now, the middle school feeder of mine was one of the top triums in the United States a couple of years ago, and they have been wanting to donate money to a nonprofit to serve the city schools. Well, one didn't exist in at that time, he didn't know about Music Orchard. And now that we have developed that relationship, he's able to donate that money to the Music Orchard nonprofit, which can in turn use that money to buy instruments for students who are interested in it. So I, I, I guess it just depends on where you're teaching and um, what sort of boundaries and barriers exist with money. We know that that's just, just such a complicated thing in teaching. Money is like that, oh, touchy thing. And so that could be a benefit to trying to create an outside organization. But I, I feel like it could be done as long as you have um, developed great relationships with your administration at your whatever your feeder pattern is. So if you're teaching at high school, just knowing the principal at the middle school, knowing what elementaries feed into those middle schools and developing relationships with the administrators to make sure they're on the same um, wavelength as you. And of course, hopefully you have great relationships with the music teachers. And I think that overall, it's going to help every single program. So if you have a high school program mentoring junior high students and um, maybe even the elementary school students, however that ends up being structured, you're just going to increase your numbers. You're going to increase your... Um, presence in those schools too. So kids are really looking forward to that in high school. Um, and I think that that just really builds community. Um, you know, a lot of times the high school is so independent from the, the middle and um, elementary level that if we can just find a way where we're all just growing in our musical abilities together, it's just such a neat thing. And what were some insights you learned from this experience in regards to yourself and even your students? So what I learned about my students in particular, because I was teaching at a gifted school, giftedness comes a lot of privilege. You don't get there without a lot of resources, whether that's monetarily or you have just had so many behind you, like so many people behind you. If you had lots of family that were encouraging you and, and setting boundaries and structures for you, um, but usually it's monetary. Like you have that resource to get to that point. That when they were working with some of these students who are in 
Richmond City Public Schools, which is a Title I district, we know that a lot of these students can come from homes that don't look like theirs. And especially with the pandemic, I found my students, and this is typical also for high school students, that it's all about me, 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 I, I, I. They don't understand others, even though they might say they do. is that they would say, you know, that their student wasn't showing up for lessons or that they weren't replying to the text messages and, and how dare they not show up to their lesson. And, and, and so talking to these high school students and just saying, did you send them a reminder text the day before? And they'd say no. And I said, well, why don't you try that next week? Say, hey, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in your lesson tomorrow. And then send them, them another reminder, like 10 minutes before the lesson. And they're like, well, they should just be showing up. <laughs> and it's like, well, they're not. So you need to find a way to meet them where they are. And you need to understand that they might not have the home life that you do where your mom was managing your schedule or whoever you lived with was on top of you and getting you to all these places. Who knows what is happening? I had one student who I didn't want to share this information with them, but their mom died like a month before lessons started. And this particular student was living in different family members' houses every week. So if she wasn't showing up for a lesson, who knows where she was? I mean, that was just what a boundary to have to, like, as a student to just go through that. And, and then to share that with a high school student who went, oh, oh, and giving them that opportunity to work with students who, who aren't like them, I think was really important. But also, I guess, in terms of equity for me is that I am very anti-charter school and I'm very um, anti-othering of students. So um, what I discovered in that is by teaching a group of gifted students, they were at a disadvantage because they weren't with students who weren't like them to be able to develop those relationships with students as well. Um, And to, to, to maybe have had that experience already because maybe one of their friends growing up with it was low income or came from a a broken household or, you know, so many of these different things that a lot of the Richmond city kids do unfortunately grow up with. And it's not to say that it's too late as a high school student to learn those lessons. I think I didn't learn this and empathize and sympathize and really truly learn um, what it meant to be in a title one school and who these students are until I was in graduate school. And um, so for, for me, my goal is to make sure that I am teaching a classroom that's reflective of the community that it's based in and that I am teaching a, a diverse group of learners. So I feel like I'm going on a tangent now, but at one point I was at a high school where literally, I kid you not, there were kids there. My, my concert master was a billionaire's granddaughter with a B, billionaire. And then I would have students who were from Section 8 housing. There was no middle class at this school, but the class, the school was split in half. And my classroom was like the night was 99% affluent, right? I didn't have, it should have been 50-50, but it wasn't. And that's a problem. So I think music educators also just need to be aware of what, you know, what's the population like in your school? What's the population like in your community? And how can you create 
opportunities to encourage students that are reflective of that population to make up your classroom. Are there any closing remarks you'd like to give or advice to music educators? I guess you need to be passionate about what you do and it's going to be contagious in the classroom and we're going to make better humans throughout that. So if you if you are practicing what you preach, if you want to create equity and inclusion in your classroom, make sure that it's reflective throughout everything you do in life and that your students see that passion in you and that conviction. And they literally, uh, they, they just absorb it so much and they become passionate about it too. And if we're going to move forward um, in this in this world, in this climate right now, I think that's so important um, that you demonstrate that passion in your teaching. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Music. Music. Music.